going on here, maybe set the scene. You can go back. It was in our Fire and Wind series. The sermon was titled Maps and Gates. You can look it up on the podcast. You don't have to do that, just if you're curious. Um, But where we're going to be today is we're picking up kind of in the middle of a narrative. And actually, I just... I want to tell you this, as I was preparing for this sermon this week, every time I would work through this sermon, um, it was like the, the text would come out in a different direction. There's so much packed into this story that is so significant for our community, for our world right now. So here's what we're going to be doing. We're actually going to spend the next three weeks in this same story. Uh, Tell LJ that he's going to have to write full group questions on the same story for three weeks in a row. I'm telling him that right now. I hope he can hear me doing security in the lobby. Um, We're going to be in the same story for three weeks because what we're going to see is the implications of this story are extremely significant. There are actually theological themes in Scripture that collide right here in this story that I think have so much to say to our church and to our culture right now. So buckle up for the next three weeks. That's where we're going to be. And uh, while you're finishing turning there, um, I just want to tell you what happened leading up to this to make sure you're caught up. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. He is an apostle. He's an early church leader establishing the church. He's staying at a guy's house, and the story says he's hungry. He goes up on the roof and goes into a trance. It's weird. I don't know how to explain it, but that's what happened. The scripture says he's hungry and he goes into a trance. While he's in a trance, he has a vision. In this vision, a sheet comes down from heaven and it's got a bunch of animals on it. Some of those animals would be clean to Jewish people. Some of those animals would be unclean. Some of those animals he would not be allowed to eat according to his laws. But a voice comes from heaven in this vision and says, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. I have never touched anything unclean. I'm not going to eat this food. And the voice says, do not call unclean what God has, been made, has made clean. Do not call unclean what God has made clean. This happens three times. The sheet goes up into heaven. Peter seems to snap out of the trance, and there's a knock at the door. The knock at the door is some men who were unclean ceremonially, men who would eat unclean foods, who would not follow Jewish customs, people that Jewish people would not traditionally associate with in this time in history. They knock at the door and they say, a friend of ours had a vision, you're supposed to come with us. So Peter says, stay the night, we'll leave tomorrow. That's where we're picking up the story. You ready to dive in? All right, I think I caught you off guard. Are you ready to dive in? Awesome, cool. Second half of chapter 10, verse 23, it says this. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Pause for a second. If you're not familiar, Gentile was just the term for anybody that's not Jewish. We can continue. It is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. 
So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Isn't it important to note that your judge lived a life just like yours? Let's keep going. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that is relevant to us now and forever. We ask that your word would minister to our hearts, that your name would be remembered. Anything that's not from you would be revealed so it can be rejected and let go. Anything that's from you would minister to our hearts and resound in our minds. The only name that matters this morning is the name of Jesus. We love you. Amen. So to start off this morning, I have, uh, I need a volunteer. I actually pre-selected my volunteer, so this is going to be pretty interactive. Landon, if you could, everybody give it up for my assistant, Landon. All right, here's what I need you to do. I actually need you to kind of stay in the aisle, but go back to the sound booth. Landon has no idea what's about to happen. (laughs) I love this. I have so much power. All right, so so this is going to be kind of weird, but just roll with me, all right? Landon, here's what I need you to do. Your goal is to get to the rug, all right? You've got to get to the rug. Here's the rules. You have to get to the rug, but you can only do what I do, okay? So if I go this way, you go this way. If I go this way, you go this way. If I pick my hands up, you pick my ha- your hands up, right? You have to do exactly what I do to get to the rug. Make sense? You understand the rules? All right, cool. All right, get to the rug. Come on. Get to the rug. It's right there. I, okay, come to the rug. Come to the Okay, now you're getting it. Go to the rug. No, the, here, let me get out of the way. Go to the rug. Okay, well, let, let's try this. Let's go to the rug. All right. Wait. Get to the rug. All right, now this is pretty obvious that this isn't going to work, right? Here's what, just wait just a second. This isn't done yet. Uh, I want to propose to you this idea. As followers of Jesus, we spend a whole lot of time trying to get people to Jesus 
by having them look like us. We spend a lot of time having people look like we do and do like we do and act like we do to try to get them to Jesus. And what we usually wind up doing is just getting in the way. And here's why. Because when I'm focused on making Landon do what I do, first off, I'm looking at Landon, not Jesus. Which means what I'm pursuing, what my model is actually my memory, my perception, my expectations of Jesus, but not the actual Jesus. You see the difference? Now, let's try this differently. This is, Mike is probably going to feedback, I'm sorry. All right, so now we're going to go to the rug. But here's what I want you to do. Um, I go to this rug a lot. <laughs> um, actually, sometimes in the dark in this building, I know where all of the places you can stub your toe in this room are. And so uh, you can watch me. You can do what I do because I've been there before. Uh, so it might be helpful, but you don't have to worry about it. I mean, just, the goal is just to get to the rug, all right? You can follow me if that would be helpful. Cool? All right, let's go to the rug. Look at that. We made it to the rug. Everybody give it up for Landon. All right, you can have a seat. All right, that was awkward. Here's, here's the idea. You see how this is different, right? If my goal is to follow Jesus, if my goal is who Jesus actually is, to continually learn who Jesus is and what he's actually doing, and I'm just inviting people along with me, then Landon gets to look at Jesus too. And he follows me for as much as I follow Jesus. But I'm not getting in his way because his goal is Jesus, right? And then if I get tripped up along the way and Landon actually winds up in front of me, I have somebody to follow now. And if we both get lost amidst all the chairs, then we've got someone to figure it out with together, right? Because the goal isn't for me to be like Landon or him to be like me. The goal is for us to be like Jesus, to notice what Jesus is actually doing where Jesus is actually working. I want to propose to you this morning that so many times we as followers of Jesus as individuals, as churches, as communities, we wind up erecting barriers that prevent people from receiving the invitation of Jesus because we're trying to get people to be like us, because we're caught up in our preconception of who God is, in our expectation of what God will do, and we're missing who Jesus actually is and what he's actually doing. And I want to offer that in this story that we just read, what we see is Peter coming face-to-face -face with his expectations of God confronting the actual work of God in the world. Now, What's coming together in this story is actually two kind of broad theological themes, two themes that exist all throughout Scripture. And these themes, if you were to study from the beginning of the Bible to the end, what you would see is that both of these themes seem to be present. And actually, both of these themes, these themes seem to contradict. They seem to be a little bit of a paradox until you get to Jesus. Jesus brings these two themes together in a beautiful harmony. But until, these theme, until Jesus, these themes seem to conflict. They create tension. In fact, there's a theologian, I can't remember who it was, but he said, the Bible is not so much a story that has its pinnacle at Jesus as it is a mystery that is unlocked through Jesus. In other words, the whole story makes sense when we read it through the lens of Jesus, as Jesus is where it was always going. So here are these two themes. The first theme is this. 
God has always been seeking to reconcile everyone who, will, who is willing to be reconciled. God has always been for all people. He has always been moving towards inviting everyone who will believe into his family, everyone who will respond to his message. Everyone is invited, and anyone can respond. This has been the theme from the beginning. In fact, if you look at the very beginning of Scripture, Tim Mackey and the Bible Project do a beautiful job of pointing out how, from the very beginning, the author of Genesis goes into great deal to show us that the original tribes and nations that became enemies actually come from brothers, They come from one family that disintegrates into warring factions and enemies. So throughout scripture, what you see is this theme, and it's it's phrased in a couple of different ways. It's either God is seeking to restore everyone into his family. God is seeking to restore the family of God together. He's inviting everyone back into his family, everyone who will respond. Or he says God is inviting everyone into his kingdom. Kingdom and family are the two primary words that are used to communicate this theme in Scripture, that God is the God of everyone, that God is inviting everyone, he's forgiving anyone who asks for forgiveness, that this is the way God's moving. Now, kingdom and family seem kind of like contrasting ideas in our world, because in general, especially Americans, don't like the idea of kings very much. We don't like the idea of someone in another place on a throne telling us what to do. In the ancient world, these wouldn't have been conflicting ideas. In fact, in many cases, people might refer to a king as a father because they would view the king as a representative or an embodiment of the nation. They would look at the king and say, that's who we are. That's representative of our people. So what is being communicated is that from the beginning, from the moment that sin fractured us, God has been seeking to restore us to a community, to a family, to a people under his lordship, under his loving care. This is the theme of scripture. But there's another theme, a seemingly contrasting theme. And that theme is that God chooses to do so by calling one family and one nation. His goal is to establish his rule, his family among all people, to restore what was broken. But he calls one man and his wife, Abraham and Sarah, He calls a family, and this family creates a nation, and this nation is given a special covenant that's different from the rest of the world, and this difference requires laws, and these laws are hard, honestly. A lot of these laws are extremely difficult to follow. Most people could not fully live up to the expectation of these laws. These laws are extremely difficult. And these laws, some of them seem to serve the primary, if not only, purpose of differentiating the people of God from the rest of the world. The people of Israel couldn't wear the same fabrics as the rest of the world. The people of Israel couldn't eat the same food as the rest of the world. They couldn't work on the same days as the rest of the world. They couldn't use the same words as the rest of the world. There were physical things like circumcision that physically differentiated them from the world around them, and there were practical things, which what that meant was on every Sabbath day, you could look out and see who was a person of Israel and who wasn't. It was obvious. You could look at what people were wearing. You could go to dinner at someone's house, and you could tell whether they were Jewish or not based on what was being served. There was exclusivity in the people of Israel. And that exclusivity was for a purpose. It was to point to the difference of God, their God, 
Yahweh, the covenant name of God in the Old Testament, is different from all other gods. How do we know? Because his people are different from all other people. They are differentiated and called to an exclusivity, which seems to contrast this idea that God is bringing everyone into his family. In fact, up until this moment that we just read about, really up until this moment, for someone to convert to following God, to following Yahweh, whom Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is God, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, prophesied through Jewish people, the fulfillment of Jewish law, every Jewish person would have seen Jesus as part of their Jewish religion, even if they believed in his ways. Up until this point, for anyone to convert to the following of God, they would have had to culturally assimilate to a Jewish faith. They would have had to change their practices on the Sabbath, They would have had to change the food that they ate. If they were male, they would have to undergo circumcision. You can imagine not a lot of people signed up. It was not a very popular belief system for conversion. Now, there were were God-fearing Gentiles. In fact, we learned earlier in the story that Cornelius was a God-fearing Gentile. He believed in the idea of Yahweh and prayed to Yahweh, but he was not one of God's people. In fact, even in the Old Testament laws, there were places in the temple that Gentiles were allowed to go, and they weren't allowed to go any further. There was a clear differentiation. So here's what's going on. Peter is a follower of Jesus. He's one of Jesus' original disciples. But Jesus, in his mind, is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the one that was prophesied from the beginning to do what God always promised to do, which was to bless all nations, but he's blessing all nations through the people of Israel. In his mind, every person that he's ever met who converted from another religion to become Jewish did the cultural conversion, had the surgery, did the things required to do to convert physically to become Jewish. And now God is doing something different. His expectations of how God works are being challenged by what God is actually doing in the world around him. His expectations of what God will do are being confronted by what God is actually doing. This is what's so important. Peter could have easily said, you know what? I know how to convert. Cornelius, call me when your military service is over. Call me, call me when you're ready to make the changes. I'll tell you about Jesus, but you know what you have to do. And in doing so, his preconceived ideas of how God would work and what God will do would have inhibited an entire group of people from receiving the invitation of the mercy of Jesus. But what we see is that rather than clinging to his expectations of how God works, Peter, because of this trance vision he had, and because of his intimate relationship with Jesus, he decides to say, you know what, I think the Holy Spirit might be up to something. Maybe we should see what God is going to do here. Maybe we should see what the Holy Spirit's going to actually do and follow what Jesus is actually saying in the world around us, rather than clinging to our expectations. And in doing so, He actually makes a way for the majority of us in this room to enter into the people of God because the majority of us are Gentiles. 
and we do not have to conform culturally to Judaism to be included into the people of God. This is so important because it forces this simple question. Do we have expectations of how God works or who God works in or who is invited or what being invited looks like that contrasts with what God is actually doing in the world around us and might actually inhibit someone receiving the invitation into the way of Jesus into the mercy of Jesus. Are our our expectations of who God is limiting our ability to see what God is actually doing in the world around us? Now, this is a weird conversation to have with a group of millennials because millennials tend to think of ourselves as like the least judgmental people in the world, right? Like, this could very, very easily turn into a sermon where we just spend the next 20 minutes talking about how all those other churches are so judgmental and all those other movements and all those other people, they are the worst and they don't like anyone and they won't let anybody into the kingdom and thank God we're doing it right, right? Amen? Here's the thing, though. And if it's all right for me to say, say this, every single person has a person or a group of people that we're uncomfortable with. Can I be that direct? Every single one of us has a person, a type of person, a person with a background, a person who looks a certain way, that really makes us uncomfortable. Who we would prefer to not be like that if they're going to be one of us. Interesting thing that happens is when we start to follow Jesus, especially when we start looking at other people, we start to believe we're the only ones that are right. So following Jesus means looking like us and acting like us. Interestingly enough, I think millennials, the most common people that we project this on are actually the generations before us. It's funny, whenever you talk about something like this, when I start saying something like, are our expectations of God limiting someone receiving the goodness of God? There are people, and maybe this isn't real, maybe this is just my imagination, but I get this kind of gut feeling that there are people who are going to say, CJ, are you saying sin's okay? (laughs) And it's funny because that comes from both sides of the perspective. You've got one section of people saying, CJ, are you saying that any sexual ethic is welcome in the kingdom? Are you saying that anybody who does any practice or any identity is just affirmed by God now? And then on the other side, you've got people that are saying, CJ, are you saying racism is okay? Are you saying nationalism is okay? Are you saying we can just tolerate prejudice and Christian nationalism and things like that within the church? Which the answer is objectively no. (laughs) What I'm saying is that sin isn't a barrier to entry into the kingdom of God. One more time. Sin isn't a barrier to entry into the kingdom of God. See, that's what Peter's learning. Peter's learning is that the only barrier to entry into God's kingdom is the willing to believe and trust and follow the work of Jesus on the cross in his death and resurrection. That that's the barrier to entry. It's not look like me, act like me, talk like me. It's not get this right or be convinced of this truth. It's do you believe in who Jesus actually is and will you surrender to his lordship? The rest will work itself out. Yeah, we spend so much time trying to convince people to align with specific things that fall under the value of the kingdom so that they can convert. You need to have a kingdom sexual ethic if you want to follow Jesus. You need to have a kingdom financial ethic if you want to follow Jesus. You need to have a kingdom political ethic if you want to follow Jesus. Why would anyone have a kingdom ethic if they don't believe Jesus is the king? 
They need to realize Jesus is king if they're going to have a kingdom ethic on anything. And they can't realize Jesus is king until they realize that his kingdom is a kingdom of love. That his kingdom invites them in right as they are, right where they are. There's this beautiful thing that happens in this story, and it's that the Holy Spirit falls on these believers as they're hearing the gospel. This is significant because, to the best of my knowledge, every other time the Holy Spirit comes on believers in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes after they are baptized with water. So in other words, the Holy Spirit moves outside of the expectations to affirm that these people are included. And every theological tradition that I know of, every strain of the church that believes in the transformation of the believer believes this. They believe that in it, however term, whatever words they use, they believe that the transformative work in the life of a believer comes through the Holy Spirit comes through the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit who forms our hearts. The Holy Spirit forms our hearts. As we do spiritual disciplines, we repent of our sins, we do the good works that God has called us to in partnership with the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts, we don't fix our hearts and present them to the Lord. We receive the work of the Holy Spirit who forms our hearts into the likeness of Christ. This is what basically every Christian tradition has believed for 2,000 years. So what we see here in the Holy Spirit coming upon these believers is God saying, I'll take care of their hearts. You take care of proclaiming the gospel. I'll take care of their formation. You teach them the scripture. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. You don't think that that Peter proclaiming the gospel to this people was him affirming the Roman military, do you? Because Cornelius was was a centurion in the Roman military. And there were a lot of things in the Roman military that went against the way of Jesus. In other words, Cornelius was going to have to make a big, significant life change as he engaged in following Jesus. Peter wasn't affirming all of his sin in that. He was just saying, you're invited right now. You're invited right now. You don't have to change first. You're invited right now. This is something that we all know, right? Most of us know that you don't have to change to receive the invitation of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit forms us. We just don't actually live as if that's true most of the time because we spend most of our efforts trying to argue people into agreement with kingdom ethics instead of arguing people into agreement or inviting, not arguing, inviting people into agreement with Jesus' lordship. Those are different things. Those are different things. I think it's interesting that we try to find a way to convince someone that the ethics of the kingdom are agreeable to their life when Jesus is king, and there's eventually going to be something that's not agreeable. So if you come to Jesus because his way is agreeable to you, then what happens when you disagree? But if you come to Jesus because he is king and the whole world is different because of his transformative work, because because everything is different because of the cross, if you come to Jesus because he is actually Lord and actually king, then whether you agree or not, he's still Lord and he's still king. See, Peter is learning that the thing he was called to, to point to the difference of God, was fulfilled in Jesus. So now he can proclaim the love of Jesus that the law was fulfilled in to invite everyone into this new way of living. I've got, honestly, I've got like hours of notes that I could talk about this. This is so significant. Because we spend so much, man, can you imagine how different it would be if rather than looking at people who fit into, I don't know, whatever group of people we're uncomfortable with and saying like, I, 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 need, to t- I need to make sure they know they're wrong so they can come to Jesus. If we just like went to dinner with him, can you imagine how different it would be? For, for the record, that's what Cornelius did first. He went, or what Peter did first, he went into Cornelius' house. He responded to an invitation. It would have been a bad reputation Peter was getting 
for going to Cornelius' house because, as he said, his law forbade him to associate with Cornelius. But he went anyway. He gave him the invitation to the way of Jesus, the invitation to respond to the love of Jesus by proclaiming the gospel because the only barrier to entry into God's people is belief in who Jesus is and the commitment to follow his way. If you can believe that he is Lord and live under his lordship, then you're in the family. And he will transform our hearts as we pursue him. You know, I've got a friend um, from when I was in Michigan. Uh, He's a great guy. He um, came to to follow Jesus while we were there. I was a youth pastor at the church. There were a group of us that were all friends with him. And over the course of like a year of hanging out with him, he decided to follow Jesus. And he had that like brand new Jesus follower passion. Some of you guys know what that's like. like, Those of us who have followed Jesus for a while, we really need to be around that more because it's just beautiful. He played in the worship band. He was like all in for worship. He was volunteering in the youth ministry. He was just all in and he was passionate and he was excited and it was beautiful. I mean, you could look at him and you could say, the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. I know that. It's obvious. I went back to Michigan a couple years after we moved and he and I got coffee and he said, I could could see that like he was going to tell me something heavy. You know how you can kind of tell that this is going to be a tough conversation? Uh, And he said, man, I got to confess something to you. Um, yeah, I gave my life to Jesus, but I, while I was like playing in the worship band and helping out with the youth ministry, um, I, I was doing cocaine. <laughs> it was a secret I didn't tell anybody, but I was living under like a consistent addiction to cocaine. And he said, man, I feel, I feel so bad. I feel like a fraud. I feel like I failed you. I feel like I failed the church. I feel like I failed God. I just wanted to confess that to you. <laughs> And I could kind of tell by the way he was, like, he was sitting that he was expecting me to be like, how could you? But instead I said, hey, I'm so glad you confessed that. Wow, praise the Lord for the transformation in your life. Praise the Lord for what the Holy Spirit did, that you're free from this addiction, that you've confessed it and you've been, you've been open about it and you're walking in freedom and walking towards freedom. Now praise the Lord for that. You know why? Because his year of cocaine addiction did not nullify the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart when he gave his life to Jesus. Because sin isn't the barrier to entry. Not since Jesus on the cross, sin is not the barrier to entry. Listen, his life would have been better if he hadn't done cocaine for a year. We can all agree on that. It would have been better for everyone, for him, for his family, for for the whole world would have been better if he hadn't done cocaine. But guess what? If he hadn't given his life to Jesus a year ago, he'd probably still be doing cocaine. Because he wouldn't have been open to the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in his life. Because sin is not the barrier to entry. We don't change people. We don't say, all right, tell me your whole life so that you can start living like me so that we can follow Jesus together. We say, you know what? That's Jesus. Let's chase him. <laughs> Let's do what he does. And the Holy Spirit does the work of transformation in their heart and in their life as we just disciple, as we just point, as we reveal. Yes, there's room in the church for confrontation and exhortation and encouragement all as we pursue Jesus together. Not so we say, cross this line so you can play. But because we're pursuing Jesus together. We're pursuing Jesus together. Sometimes I think we forget how expansive and beautiful and vast this thing that we claim is. This, this, how revolutionary this idea of Jesus is. And I think that's why we feel like we have to micromanage everybody else's behaviors. Because we don't realize how big the gospel is, so we feel like we have to do the little work. Cornelius didn't, he had no misgivings. Cornelius was a centurion, 
in the army of the emperor that a large majority of people worshipped as the son of God. His job was to enforce Roman laws, which were oftentimes kind of gross, on the subjugated peoples. In the Roman army, we actually get the terms gospel and evangelist from the Roman military. Because the Roman army would send an evangelist, a messenger of the army, to a newly conquered people and would preach the gospel. And they would say, there's good news. Caesar is Lord. And because Caesar is Lord, you have freedom and liberty and justice and peace. Hail Caesar. That was the gospel that Caesar would preach. That was the gospel that, that uh, Cornelius served. So he knew exactly what it meant when he said, no, Jesus is Lord. It meant his whole world was different. It meant the entire structure of power around him was invalid. It meant that the violence and the pleasure and the, the monetary gain and the manipul and everything that went into the life he knew didn't matter anymore and wasn't relevant, that the actual way of the world, the actual power in the world was sacrifice and service and generosity and forgiveness and mercy. He com it completely undid and turned upside down his understanding of the world. For him to say Jesus is Lord meant him saying the world is not what I thought it was. Nothing is the way I thought it was. Everything is different. So I think maybe if someone can say Jesus is Lord, if they are willing to make the commitment that everything is different, then maybe we can trust that he will have lordship over their addictions too. And we don't have to worry about micromanaging those out of people. But we can proclaim the lordship of Jesus and invite them into the way of Jesus. Listen, once again, I'm not saying that we just affirm sin. We call it what it is. We, just, we know it's not the barrier to entry. And we know the Holy Spirit does the work of transforming. So we don't worry about making people look like us. We worry about proclaiming the lordship of Jesus. Man, if someone is willing to claim Jesus is Lord, everything is different. This is not the world I thought it was. He is ruler and he is love, and I am under his kingship and his command, then, then whatever lifestyle they're currently living, I'm pretty convinced the lordship of Jesus is going to work out. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. We're going to preach it from scripture, and the Holy Spirit's going to minister it to their hearts and bring them into alignment, bring them into surrender to the lordship of Jesus, just like it did with my friend, who eventually surrendered his cocaine to the lordship of Jesus, because sin isn't the barrier to entry. leaves us all with a simple question. Am I caught up in my preconceptions and expectations of how God is going to work? Is there a group of people or maybe a specific person in my life that I think I know exactly what the work of the Lord is going to look like? They need to change this thing, and that will be the work of the Lord. They need to surrender this thing, and that will be the work of the Lord. They need to change their mind about this, and that will be the work of the Lord. You know, for a lot of us, it might be like our parents or our uncles <laughs> And we're saying, hey, you, gotta, you can't talk like that anymore if you want to experience this thing that I've got with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, listen, that sin doesn't keep them out any more than any other one does. Amen. Who is it? Is there a people group? Is there a way you're expecting God to move that you need to say, no, I want to see how you actually move Jesus. I don't want to miss out on who you actually are. Interestingly enough, what we see through the next couple of chapters is that Peter and the leaders of the early church they actually go back to the Bible 
and they say, this is weird, we didn't expect this, let's see what scripture has to say about it. And what they find is that this is where scripture was going all along, it's always been part of the story. Uh, we're, we're not promoting that we just let our feelings and our experiences guide us away from scripture, we're, we're promoting, we're, we're saying that when we realize that we misunderstood it, <laughs> that we weren't right, and that there's a, better, there's a deeper thing, that God's doing something else, that we let scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit be our authority, Instead of us be the authority over it, we live under the lordship of who Jesus actually is, not who we want him to be, not who we thought he was. Last thing, and then we're done. We've got home written on the wall out there. We say all the time we are a community pursuing the healing and wholeness of Jesus by finding home, family, and purpose. What we're talking about today is what it means to come home. Because when you go home today, it does not matter how bad you messed up or failed this morning. The door's not going to be locked on you because it's your home. You got the key. At the risk of being a little on the nose, I think Jesus is the key. What we're saying is you are welcome in the family of God, all who would believe in the work of Jesus and choose to follow him. That's the barrier to entry. That's how we invite people home is we tell them who Jesus is. And when they see who Jesus is, they'll see his ways. If they're willing to believe that he is Lord, then they're willing to experience some transformation. We tell people who Jesus is. That's how we invite people home. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are grateful that you have called us all part of your family. That you have invited us all into your kingdom and you've given us all the beautiful joy of responding. You've given us all the freedom of a decision in the matter. But you extend the invitation always and no matter what. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. We thank you that we could not construct a barrier to entry that your cross would not destroy. Now God, I ask that we would see first how invited and how loved we are in your family and in your kingdom. And that as we are captured by your immense and unconditional love for us, that it would cause us to extend love and invitation to the people around us. No matter who they are or what they are or what lifestyle they're living, let us be people of the invitation home. Let us find home in you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.